Hi everybody, Liam here. What you're about to listen to is my interview with Oakland-based author Jenny O'Dell. This was recorded in front of a live audience on April 4th, 2023, about two weeks ago, and uh, the event happened at the Back Room in downtown Berkeley. It was a fundraiser for KPFA Radio, so thanks so much to everyone who came out. We had a packed house, and uh, KPFA really appreciates your support. Shout out to Brandy Howell for doing the recording and Kevin Hunsinger for managing everything that night. As you'll hear in this episode, we do talk about Bay Area history, like usual, but uh, this one is a bit more focused on the concept of time itself, like how we mentally process history, as well as the present. I hope you'll enjoy the conversation. I know I did. And if you want to give me your feedback in person... You can come on one of my boat tours of the Bay. Uh, I just posted dates for my June and July tours. As always, you can find links at eastbayyesterday.com. And that's about it. Let's get to the show. As always, I'm your host, Liam O'Donoghue. Here's my interview with author and artist, Jenny O'Dell. All right, thank you so much for coming, everybody. Uh, this is a very special event, uh, I think, for both of us. Uh, almost exactly four years ago, I interviewed Jenny on the day, the exact day that her first book, How to Do Nothing, was published. And uh, that conversation ended up being the first live episode of East Bay Yesterday. And a lot has happened since then. Jenny, of course, became a best selling author after. Barack Obama gave her a shout out, and I got a show on KPFA. So, <laughs> I think we're both doing pretty, good, pretty well for ourselves. So I got this book, Saving Time, Discovering a Life Beyond the Clock, a few weeks ago, and uh, it's a brilliant follow-up. You've probably seen the blurbs about how this is a critique of the commodification of time, and it is, but it's so much more. It's... It seamlessly blends political, cultural, natural, and personal history to tell an incredible story about how the world has developed over the past few centuries, and crucially also how we as a species perceive that development. And uh, even though it's a very serious book, it's also <laughs> very funny. Uh, like, here's the most Jenny O'Dell <laughs> sentence ever. I'm going to quote you right now, Jenny. <laughs> Quoting Jenny here. My senior year in high school, I developed a habit of cutting class and going to the park to stare at the mallard ducks. <laughs> like, who does that? Who does that? The same type of person who intersperses quotes from Angela Davis and Karl Marx and Rebecca Solnit with quotes from Simpsons characters and Butthead from Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> In other words, a very, a very unique mind, uh, someone who can look from the beach uh, in Pacifica to look up and, and write that what they observe is, quote, houses and streets that look like a precarious dusting of civilization upon the restless, churning cliffs. It's phrases like that that will make you want to read this book slowly, savor the language, and pause at the questions both written and unwritten. Uh, speaking of which, one of my favorite questions in the book uh, is a rhetorical one. This one, I think you're quoting a Spanish journalist who uh, asks, 
do you need a therapist or do you need a union? <laughs> Brilliant. Another great question the book raises, are rocks alive? That might sound a little funny or obvious at first, but the question is actually a lot more radical than it first appears. And make no mistake, this is a very radical book. Sure, it critiques capitalism and colonialism, as it should, but as good KPFA listeners, these critiques uh, are probably not unfamiliar. Where Jenny really breaks new ground is in her critiques of how we think about time itself and how that perception affects our relationships with each other and the world around us. Uh, if this is all starting to sound a bit philosophical, it is, but as most of you are probably familiar uh, with my show, East Bay Yesterday, uh, you know, I'm focused on local history, and so while today's conversation will be a bit more metaphysical than most episodes, I'm gonna do my best to keep this interview firmly attached to the soil here, just like Jenny does quite literally in the book, uh, which takes the reader on a tour from Oakland to the ocean and back again. Can I get one more round of applause for Jenny O'Dell? All right, so let's start the conversation where you start chapter one of the book, The Port of Oakland, because you do take readers on a tour throughout the Bay Area. So what made you want to start specifically at the Port of Oakland? So the main reason that I started there was because I knew that I needed to start with um, sort of talking about time as money and the history of that idea. And so I feel like the port, I was trying to sort of set each chapter in a place where what I was talking about was visible in a concrete way. So if you're talking about measured, standardized and industrialized time, I think being at the port and just thinking about uh, the shipping container as a visual metaphor, it's something that not only is standardized, but it was standardized for a reason. It was standardized in order to make commerce go faster and sort of make goods more interchangeable. Um, and then I also, I loved the fact that it, it, I kind of wanted to have foreshadowing in each chapter of where you're gonna go later in the journey. And the fact that if you go to the Oakland port, if you're at Middle Harbor Shoreline Park, you, you see the, you know, you see this one sort of clock running and during the pandemic, you know, there were a lot of articles about the supply chain. So being there, you know, you're thinking about that kind of global clock. Um, but then at the same time you turn around and you see like, uh, you know, marbled godwits and curlews and other migratory birds that are on their own schedule. So it's kind of this very surreal contrast of different times that I wanted to explore throughout the rest of the book. But the other like reason that I wanted to start there, which is probably only satisfying to me is that how to do nothing ends at that park. So it's like, I, I consider this the sequel to How to Do Nothing, and I was like, what if it started exactly where I left off? Um, and so that's, yeah, that's, those are some reasons that I decided to put it there. I actually just noticed that today when I was coming up with these questions, that this book picks up exactly where How to Do Nothing left off. So I guess if you keep up this sort of interlocking book concept, the next <laughs> book will start at Mountain View Cemetery? Yeah, I mean, it could happen. Yeah, I, yeah. I can see it, yeah. <laughs> So um, sort of getting to like the big theme of the book, one of the, one of the kind of arguments you put forth is a challenge to a quote, reading of history as a linear story of the encroachment of capitalism into all locale, locales and areas of life. And so I'm just wondering if, if first you can kind of explain like, 
like what is that what does that linear reading of history look like and i'm wondering if you can give some local examples of how how you want to challenge that yeah um i mean i think i started off when i was just starting to write the book proposal i was thinking about um measured clock time and sort of time as money as being an invasive species of time that arose in a very specific uh, historical context and then spread to all these different places via colonialism and then spread through industrialism and then sort of spread into the ways that we conceive of our own time and identities. Um, and so it's just kind of that that was the, the trajectory that I wanted to trace. Um, I guess I'm trying to think of an, a local example of that. Um, I mean, you, I feel like you're someone who appreciates the fact that history maybe feels more, to, to me anyway, like geology and that things can, you can still see them and they're still part of the material world that you're in. And sometimes something, some vein from the past will become very suddenly exposed and it doesn't feel like those things are far away. It feels like they're all kind of like jumbled together and you're just in it all the time. And we just had that earthquake here a couple days ago, right, that I felt, and it was this reminder that, like, the ground is moving. Um, and when I was writing the last chapter, which is set in Mountain View Cemetery, I kind of, basically throughout the chapter, there's these italicized paragraphs that are, sound like a t tour guide, um, like, now we're looking at this thing, right, in the Mountain View Cemetery, and then it usually has to do with whatever I'm going to talk about next in the chapter. And in that particular part of the chapter, I talk about the stranger's plot in Mountain View Cemetery, which is where there are a lot of, uh, it's weird because if you, I don't, have you gone there? Like, have you looked at it? It's, there's no Actually, indication that, that there's the, anything there. It's really fascinating. That's one of the issues of Oakland history that I learned from this book. I've, I've been to Mountain View a million times, but I, I didn't know about the history of the stranger's plot and also the fact that there's been sort of revelations about it recently that yeah. I'd love to hear you kind of expand on. Yeah, so the stranger's plot is like when you, it's funny, I feel like I always see people like having a picnic there because they think, because there's no graves, so they, it's like it feels less awkward to have a picnic there, but um, it's sort of right when you walk in and if you turn to the right and there's a big seemingly open area um, and it's, it's a plot where people who were basically too poor to have any grave or marking um, were buried. And um, uh, my understanding is a lot of them were Chinese. Some of them were from, I think, a dynamite factory explosion in Berkeley. Um, but this idea, like I, I write in that chapter about looking at that sort of empty patch of grass and then looking at like the grave for Crocker. You know, like I'm, it's like the opposite of Millionaire's Row, where yeah. like Crocker and all those captains of industry are lined up in like literal pyramids and things like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. and um, uh, and so and I it made me think of this. I I can't remember. I, I think it's Walter Benjamin who says even the dead are not safe. Like in the past, like if they're not, if history is sort of not told, if it's not told at all, right? Or if it's not told in the right way. So, um, I I think there's a lot in this book of about nonlinear time, both in the sense of like looking at ecological time and geological time, but also bringing that understanding to things that have happened in the past that are still alive, like with us now and are affecting like everything about how we're experiencing the everyday world, that there's actually nothing sort of everyday about the everyday. It's like very embedded in those processes. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And I like that you're talking about sort of like bringing up the past. 
there's like an example that pops to my mind is like uh, there's efforts now to bring wetlands back to the bay, right? Which is like another example of sort of like history not working in this linear fashion. Like the bay was polluted for a long time and over the last few decades, there's been all these efforts to like restore the natural aspects of the bay like wetlands. But one of the obstacles to that is the fact that a lot of like heavy metals are buried under the sediment going all the way back to the gold rush era. So even in these um, kind of efforts to bring back the past, there's kind of like hidden sort of time bombs or landmines from these eras of like uh, industrialization and kind of, you know, exploitation of the land that are still kind of sabotaging us decades after they were set there due to the kind of productive nature of those operations. Yeah, totally. And I think, I mean, that's, I think there's this sort of understanding of history is directly for me opposed to that. I guess when I say linear history, like in what you were quoting, I, I, I meant mostly like a kind of determinist view of time. Like things are the way they are now because they were meant to be this way. Like it was Mm. always going to end up this way, um, which is something that, you know, I talk about in the climate chapter. Like that's some, that's a way of thinking that um, fossil fuel companies really um, like to push is like, well, we're all just going to continue consuming fossil fuels. So that's out of the question, like just completely sidelining any kind of imagining any other way of being. Um, And something that I have, something that I enjoy about looking through archives um, and particularly like primary sources or like zine, like Process World magazines, you know, from the 80s and 90s is seeing like these moments where someone was as uncertain about the future as I feel and they were trying to respond in some kind of way that was not necessarily predictable and that was imaginative and creative. And you kind of see that if you if you illuminate those moments in the past, it sort of, for me, it reminds me that uh, I actually, um, there is no script for what I am going to do in the future or what we are going to do in the future. And it makes the future appear very different. Like I, I have described this book before as trying to reawaken one's appetite for the future. And I, I really mean appetite. It like feels like, um, like after you've had food poisoning and you're getting your appetite back, like that's what it feels like to me. It's like, is the future this kind of like plotting towards certain doom or is it an open field of possibility? And there's a really big difference between those two. Yeah. Yeah. You know what, as long as you brought up process world, um, let's talk about that for a second. Uh, one of the things I love about the fact that like your books are being read all over the world now is the fact that these kind of semi obscure like Bay Area cult classics, you know, these locations like Prowling Our Library, these old publications like Process World are probably going to reach a whole new audience um, because of the exposure you're giving them. And also I I need to bring up Process World too because uh, one of the people that really got me into local history when I first moved to the Bay 20 years ago was one of the people who founded Process World, Chris Carlson, who um, actually is like still, um, you know, sort of a mentor to me in ways I went on on his tour of Popos last week, public, no, privately owned public open spaces in San Francisco, and he was also <laughs> able to hook up a trip to the roof of the Tribune Tower last week, which was like something I can finally check off my bucket list. Amazing. But uh, he was one of the founders of this magazine that was kind of like an underground DIY thing in the 80s and 90s, but I think because it was so far ahead of its time, or at least like so prescient about the emerging tech 
sector in the Bay Area that is still really relevant, and you talk about it in this book. So um, can you, you know, unpack that a little bit? Like, why did you want to, how, how did you weave the, this old, you know, 80s kind of <laughs> anti-office work yeah. zine into, you know, this, this book about the commodification of time? Yeah, so I actually, I was looking at an old journal from 2018, and I realized that I found out about Process World when I was writing How to Do Nothing. I don't remember how I found out about it, but I happened to be in the basement uh, level of the Sanford Library, which has is the only other place I know besides the Pralinger Library that has the entire run of Process World magazines. And I, w I just was like going through them, and then I, I immediately emailed Chris Carlson out of the blue. I don't, I mean, I could probably go find that email, but it was, I just was like so excited that I immediately <laughs> emailed him and was like, I'm working on this project that I think is very um, in line with the sort of like politics of process world, which if you haven't seen it, it's, um, it's, it's a surprisingly long running magazine yeah. um, that like, well, I think partially because it wasn't regularly published. It wasn't like yeah. a monthly thing. It was yeah. sort of like they'd put it out whenever, whenever they got they around like to it. it. Yeah, so yeah, sometimes yeah. it'd be like two or three years, four yeah. years in between issues. Yeah, yeah. But it was like kind of culture jamming before that was a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It has, it's, it has amazing illustrations, collages. It's both, um, it's both very serious and very funny. Um, it has this like sort of cut. It's very like Daria-esque to me. Like it's a sort of cutting sarcasm that you would have like with your coworkers if you worked in a really sort of meaningless um, office job. Like the sort of uh, disdain that you would have for your boss or for the companies um, is is very much there. Um, and a lot of it is very heartfelt in terms of wondering like what does it mean that I'm that I'm spending my time here. Like I'm watching the hours slip through my fingers. I'm watching the clock. Like what does it mean that, that we're here doing this? And it was also, I think early on, printed on paper that was stolen from Bank of, Bank of America because one of the people worked at Bank of America. Um, they, they're, they, they're just like, they're, one of the things that I quote in the book is um, Chris took a typing test uh, for like a temp, because they're all temps, like the people working on this magazine. And the typing test is like, about how time is money, but it's like very uh, um, sincere about how time is money. And he he copied the entire thing into Process World with no comment except for labor theory of value, question mark. Um, <laughs> and, then, and then I reproduce it in full in this book, so it lives on. I don't know who yes. wrote that typing test, but... Um, so it's that kind of humor, right? It was like, you don't, you don't even really need to say anything. It's like just making fun of employee awards and stuff like that. So I, I wanted to use it somehow on how to do nothing. And I couldn't, I, I just couldn't, couldn't really fit it in there. I'm glad that I didn't, cause I think it's a lot more appropriate in this book. And it, it comes in the part of the book where I'm, a lot of it is me thinking through like, can, can, how can you reconnect to the desire for something more than these consumer choices that are being offered to you? Like there has to be more agency and choice than that, right? And that, that magazine has such a great articulation of that and I feel like it's very relatable and prescient. Like they're talking about temp work um, and a lot of the things that are written about in that magazine map really interestingly onto gig work now, um, particularly because it's so, uh, you know, dispersed and um, technologically mediated through those interfaces. But um, something that I talked about at my launch, which I didn't realize Chris was there when I said this, um, he wrote an essay recently about 
um, that was in part about what the what the hopes of Process World were. And he says, you know, we wanted to sort of get all these people on board with our politics and didn't really pan out. And then he's sort of like, I don't know, maybe it was our job to just kind of plant the seed or or like make this sort of communication and hope that someone carries it forward. And again, I immediately emailed him uh, upon reading that and was like, Chris, like that's what I did in this book um, because I I used to teach college students and I'm like, I know that they would absolutely recognize the humor and but also like the fury of this magazine. And, it, and so it's like, it lives on, like that is exactly what happened. And uh, I think that's, Again, a sort of like thinking about time, like there are these things that happen like that that are so, um, something can be like dormant for a long time or it can happen very quickly or maybe it's sort of been happening all along but it suddenly becomes visible. Yeah, no, definitely. Now that you're talking about it, it's just making me realize that another thing that I think process world and your work have in common is they're both sort of like trying to challenge the alienation that people feel in this kind of like neoliberal world of individualism where like if you read the letters um, that people would send in a process world, this is like before the internet, so many people are writing in like, I thought I was the only person who felt this way. Like I feel so you know, empty in my office job and I just stare at the clock all day and I feel like I'm wasting my life. And through reading this magazine, I feel like I've found my people or like at least other people who think like me. And I feel like a lot of your work is also about sort of like kind of um, just putting these ideas out there that make folks realize like, you're, you're not the only one who thinks this way. You're not the only one who feels alienated in this world. Like, and here are some sort of tools or like, you know, at least questions to ask yourself to start to challenge that feeling. Yeah, definitely. And I also, I really feel like I am, I, uh, I don't want this book to sort of be like an end in and of itself. Like when I think about how to do nothing, to me, the most rewarding thing about that is um, hearing that other people have found certain things easier to talk about with other people because of some kind of some some image or some vocabulary from that book. Like it's just something that that makes uh, some maybe a feeling that was a little bit ineffable or hard to think about like a little bit clearer. Like that's ultimately what I want. And I think I say that at the very beginning of this book is that I want it to feel like it's in conversation with the reader. I'm literally addressing you directly in those paragraphs in which I imagine that you and I are in my uh, my old car from high school, <laughs> 2003 Corolla, um, like driving to these different locations, um, but then that I also want the reader to then be able to talk to other people about the things that are in the book. So I don't want it to see it, see it as this kind of like closed object or achievement or anything like that. I just am putting it forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, so you just brought up a phrase that I've heard you use many times in talking about this book since, you know, years ago when you were first starting to think about what this might be about, which is kind of interrogating this idea of time is money. And I was actually thinking about that in a very literal way the other day when I was driving on 880, because of course there's the express lanes <laughs> for people that want to go faster and pay extra. And then there's the other lanes for all the people that don't want to pay extra and just are um, forced to sit in gridlock. Um, it's one of the most unpleasant locations in the Bay Area, 880, and yet you chose to set one of your chapters there. <laughs> well, uh, it's yeah. like a real contrast with like all the beaches and parks that you go to later in the book, like this hellish stretch of highway. So like, tell me about oh, that yeah. decision. What, what made okay. you want to you know, put readers in this hellish place? And I am sorry for, uh, in advance. There's even a photo, because I have photos of the different locations. So you have my photo from my car of 880 <laughs> traffic jam. Um, 
So um, I wanted the whole route to be a circle. That was something that I decided from the beginning. So it had to start and end in Oakland. The reason being I wanted I wanted to evoke that sense of returning to the same place, but you've learned something because that is a, an experience of time, right? Like non, non-standardized or almost like alchemical time, like you have changed. Um, and so, and I knew that I wanted the middle of the book, which is about um, sort of non-linear geological time to be at Pescadero. So I had those kind of like points. So it had to go out there and come back. And the chapter on leisure, which is chapter three, is split between the Stanford Shopping Center and uh, like a uh, open space preserve. So it had to be between Oakland and there. And I was, and chapter two is about uh, personal time management, like time management self-help, where it's imagined that you have 24 out, 24 kind of fungible hours in the day, that everyone has 24 fungible hours in the day, and those who are not successful are not using them as efficiently as they should, um, which is this like very cruel fiction that is still very popular. Um, and so I was thinking about that like zero sum game way of thinking about time where if you have more, I have less. If you get ahead, I'm further back. And I was like, oh, it's a traffic jam on 880 because like if someone gets in front, like you are you aren't gonna get there as soon, you know? Um, and it's also I, I talk a little bit in the in those paragraphs about being on 880 of just sort of looking around and and in this very isolated way, like realizing that like everyone is just kind of trying to make it work. Like everyone's just that's everyone's just trying to make it work in their life, you know, and, and like circumstances are very different. And then you're all sort of here on this very alienating freeway. Yeah. 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 All right. That's enough about 880. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I think when most people think about like learning history, um, you know, you probably picture reading books or watching documentaries, but uh, of course, like another way of, of learning history is by, kind of learning how to read nature and like read the landscape around you. It's like an obvious example would be like something you, you know, talk about, which is like seeing the sort of, like you can see this when you hike in the um, East Bay Hills, like the actual layers of like the rock corresponding to different geological eras. Um, But a kind of less obvious example is buckeye trees. Um, And you kind of go in depth on sort of all the things we can learn about natural history and even even, uh, indigenous history, native history from looking at buckeye trees, um, which are a tree that I think doesn't get as much love as some of the more charismatic trees in the Bay Area. Like you can walk around Lake Merritt and see buckeyes and they kind of blend in with all the other trees. So um, tell us a little bit about buckeye history and uh, what what we can learn from, from looking at buckeyes and their locations. Yeah, so I, um, I really love buckeye trees in part because the flower, the buckeye flower is just my favorite smell. It's just unlike anything else. I'm I'm really looking forward to it. It's like I know it's coming soon, um, and I there was a buckeye tree that I was walking. I still walk past um, probably several times a week, so it meant that I was walking past it a lot during the pandemic, and I kind of seized upon it as um, I don't really want to call it a clock, but it was a some kind of expression of time that was very like physical and concrete and it felt very different from how time felt for me in the early pandemic as someone who was working from home uh, where every day felt the same and there was kind of no end in sight. So that, you know, like sort of browser time, right? Like work and leisure are two different tabs on my computer um, and day after day sort of feels the same versus when I walk past this tree uh, in the spring, in particular, things happen really fast. Um, it's dormant a large part of the year, but then this part of the year, it's like 
every day you go back, it looks different. And so I started walking past this tree and trying to pay attention to a specific branch, um, which is a kind of method that I suggest in the book for seeing a different kind of time that's not money, is just picking a really specific point in space and paying attention to it. And so it, I kind of used it as a meta, uh, like a meditation on different scales of time. So there's obviously the seasons, um, the, the part where it goes dormant and then the part where it's flowering. But then even within that, it's very nonlinear. So when the tree is starting to go dormant, the yellow is unevenly spread across the tree. It's unevenly spread across a leaf, you know? And so those things are not happening at the same time. And then going further back, uh, there is a really amazing article specifically about California buckeyes in Bay Nature, where that author talks about the fact that, I mean, this wouldn't be the case with the tree that I'm looking at, but buckeyes have, uh, they grow these poisonous seed pods that, um, that aren't eaten by, I don't think, any animals. I'm not sure. They're not popular <laughs> among the animals. Um, and so they kind of just land where they are, they, um, or they might like roll downhill. And in this article, he was suggesting the fact that there are some kind of like ridges in the Bay Area where that have buckeyes, where there's no way that they those buckeyes would have gotten up there unaided by humans. Um, and he surmises that they could have been sites where Ohlone people were using them, processing them, because you can use they have uses other than eating, basically. Um, or and I think you can eat them in, as like a sort of last resort, um, but. They anyway. It's the point that being that their their very placement in the landscape is a kind of indication of something that's happened in the past. And then going even further back, there's the fact that their dormancy and that kind of schedule that they're on is a response to um, a change in the climate that happened at the time that they were evolving. So it's just like if you just take that one thing right um, and sort of think about all of the different scales of time that it can evoke. Um, I, I turns out that I really needed that <laughs> during the pandemic, mm -hmm. and I think it sort of made me seize onto it like even more strongly. Yeah, no, I mean it's a perfect example of like how this book is sort of changing the way that I look at Oakland and the world around me. Um, I'll never look at Buckeyes quite the same way after reading about them here. Um, and uh, there's another example that I want to bring up of how the how the book has kind of changed the way I'm looking at the world, and that is related to a section where you talk about. These, anyone who's been to like a beach in kind of, you know, the central California area or Pescadero, for example, has probably seen these. Um, they're called tifonies, which I didn't know. And they sort of look like uh, sponges made out of sandstone a little bit. They're kind of Swiss cheesy looking. It's kind of like this rock face with like all these little holes in it that's caused by erosion and wind. They're a little bit mysterious. We don't know exactly how they form and they're all very unique. So I'm working on an upcoming story about the history of the Berkeley dump, uh, landfills being another topic that we're both very <laughs> fascinated by. Uh, so in, in researching the story, I was walking along the perimeter of the old dump, which is now Cesar Chavez Park out by the Berkeley Marina. And um, this section of the perimeter that I was walking is all like, um, the rocks are like construction debris. You know, it's like chunks of old asphalt, concrete, all man-made rocks. Um, riprap and things like that. And then all of a sudden, when I was walking, I like stopped dead in my tracks because there was a big chunk of tifoni in spread amongst the asphalt and concrete rebar. And I was like, wait a second, that doesn't belong here. That belongs on the beach. How did it end up with all this construction debris? 
And um, before I read your book, I probably wouldn't have noticed that. Like maybe I would have been like, oh, that one looks a little different, but I wouldn't have thought like, what is this doing, you know, mm -hmm. 30 miles from the beach? It was very uh, jarring and out of place. Like, like seeing like a KPFA bumper sticker in the parking lot of like a Kid Rock concert <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> And so I like I'm just I'm sure like during your research like you've you've learned so many things that like change the way that you see Oakland and the Bay Area differently and I'm wondering if you could talk about that for a little bit. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there are a lot of things, but I I I'm a big fan of um, Andrew Alden, the our local Oakland geologist, um, and I I relied on his blog and also on him. I I had to email him a lot of rock questions um, for that chapter. <laughs> And so I, uh, one thing that I discovered, I think after I wrote this, um, uh, there are some really big boulders in Piedmont Park that are, that I learned from his blog are schist, um, blue schist, which is a really comparatively old rock is my understanding. Um, and I, those are, you know, I pass them once in a while and it's just like, I feel like just thinking about the age of the, it's just so, I mean, in a place like that in particular, I think when you're, you know, in your Pescadero and you're looking at the cliffs and the rocks, like you're kind of inclined to think about things being really old, you know, but if you're just like in Piedmont Park and like someone's dog is jumping on you, like, and then there's this big boulder of schist. It's like, uh, it's, it, it's amazing to see it just sort of like serve like this Island of the past that's surviving to the present or something. And so I would say just in general, like Oakland and he had that great book come out. The, the oh, it didn't open. come out yet. Yeah. yeah, we should give a shout out to Andrew oh, Alden. I think it comes out next month. Oh, I'm actually <laughs> doing an interview with him next month, so okay. hopefully it doesn't come out until next month because that's the plan. Um, deep, deep Oakland, deep Oakland yeah. and it's coming out on Heyday Books, so it'll yeah. be available everywhere. Yeah, shout yeah, out yeah, Heyday. Yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, I would say that's one example, and and just and even thinking about the fault, right? Like. Uh, thinking about how much the Hayward Fault has to do with the landscape that I look at every day and sort of take for granted. Um, so I think one of the things that both of us really appreciate about the Bay Area is like the wild juxtapositions of nature and kind of like built space. Um, for example, like when I was in my 20s, I thought it was really cool to like go to these abandoned industrial areas and take pictures of like wildflowers growing through the cracks. And, you know, it's like cool, but it's like kind of basic, a little cliche. <laughs> um, so like my new favorite example is a, a thing that you bring up in the book, which is, um, so there's the bir these bird cams all around the Bay Area, right? Where they have like a camera on uh, like an osprey nest or a falcon nest. There's a famous one um, up at the Campanile on Berkeley's campus. But uh, the one that I want to mention is there's one on a ship crane in Richmond, uh, the ship called the Red Oak Victory. And it's an osprey nest. And the reason why ospreys are nesting in cranes and light poles uh, are because most of the tall trees that were right on the perimeter of the bay are long gone. So they're adapting and making do. And so this osprey nest is one of the osprey nests that we pass on my boat tours. And uh, I was pointing it out on one of the tours and this lady who's like part of this bird club or like a bird organization is like, oh, you know, um, that uh, camera kind of had like a notorious incident happen with it recently. And I was like, what? And she's like, yeah, um, you know, the camera has got kind of a wide angle so you can see the bird nest and the little osprey hatchling chicks, whatever. And, but you also you can see the parking lot behind it, and we saw um, scrap metal thieves like looting, <laughs> looting the site, like like stealing stuff from the parking lot. And so, like, I thought that that was just this really fun example of like, first of all, it's so Bay Area, 
<laughs> but it's like this example of like how when you're just stopping to like observe nature, you never know what you're gonna see. And I feel like your book is like full of examples like that where you're just like stopping to like look at moss or like whatever. All, then you notice all these other things. Or like if you're just like sitting there staring at like a certain scene, things come into the picture that you would notice if you were just kind of rushing by. Yeah, yeah. There, um, I mean, obviously, I think like any if anyone here has read How Did You Nothing, you know that I am a person who uh, enjoys closely observing things, um, like very, very, very closely. Cutting but class I, to stare at the mailers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I, I think even sometimes I, I still was surprised, um, in this, in this book at some of the things that I noticed and sort of where they led. And the one that I still always think about is in chapter five, which is set in Pacifica and is about kind of climate dread and that, that way of thinking about the future. Um, there, I'm, I'm describing in those paragraphs, you know, like the cliffs, the parts that are like eroding really badly and the sort of condemned building lots um, and the failing seawall. Um, but then there is, you know, I, so I took public transportation from Oakland to Pacifica to, um, the day that I went to go make my observations for that part of the book. And, um, and so I got there and I was walking along the beach and then along the seawall and there is a section that's like, or there's a thing that's near the pier that's a sort of semicircle of wooden posts and then a plaque. And the plaque is referring to something that confusingly is no longer there, which is an anchor, a big anchor um, that was there at some point from a ship that had sunk there um, in the same exact place where a ship, another ship had sunk. And so it's just sort of commemorating this shipwreck and, um, and, I, yeah, I don't know where the anchor went. So when I was, I went home and I was trying to research like where, you know, what happened with this anchor and what is the deal with this and why is there a plaque? Um, I found a shipwreck, I found the ship in a shipwreck database and then I was able to look up what was on the ship. Okay, and just for context, that entire, up until that point in that chapter, I've been trying to make the point that um, thinking about climate, like contrasting thinking about climate change as something that's coming for you in the future versus acknowledging that it sort of start, it began with colonialism. Um, so I've been talking about that and you come upon this weird plaque and it turns out that the ship was carrying supplies to a plantation in Hawaii. And at that time, Hawaii had imported basically people from all different countries to labor on these plantations and sort of coerce them and try to get them to work in a regular manner. Uh, like an industrious manner, and uh, those plantations, because so many trees were cut down, they actually affected like a mini version of climate change on um, on the island and altered the rainfall patterns in a way that was a huge problem for them. And so they had to sort of frantically reforest the area. And uh, I just I just mentioned that because for me that is an example. And I think I thought of you when I was writing that part because it's like. It's something that you you walk by and you see, and it's sort of an indication of something. But if you really kind of stop and look at it and interrogate and and like ask why is that there, it will lead you to this history that, for me, when you encounter it that way, feels very different from how we learned it in school, which is like these things happen. They're very abstract. They are not connected to you. They're not part of this world. They're almost not real. Versus like the thing that I saw is explained by these things that really happened. Yeah. And that's another good example of hashtag always read the plaque. Right? <laughs> yes. That's like a real thing. Like if you go, there's a Twitter account called read the plaque. And like, 
Seriously, like, once you get this in your mind of, like, if you never walk by a plaque, like, we, I mean, you just walk by plaques all the time without even noticing them. <laughs> like, especially park bench plaques. Like, yeah. crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. Or even just, like, little phrases that will sometimes cheer you up. Like, I think, I don't remember, somehow, like, we got into, like, talking about park bench plaques years ago and so now whenever I see like a particularly good one I'll like send a, uh, send a picture of it to you and like yeah. the one that always sticks out in my mind is like you know you can dedicate a park bench to someone and it'll say like their name and their family buys it for them usually after they pass away and it'll be like the dates and like sometimes a quote from the person and there was this one that was it's nice to be nice and I just thought that was like <laughs> such a lovely sentiment like every time I forget I think that might yeah. be up in Sibley no, or somewhere but whenever a... I walk by that one I'm like yeah <laughs> there's there's a bench um, in the the Baylands Preserve that isn't dedicated to anyone. It just says, "Enjoy the water, enjoy the water, air, and birds." <laughs> okay, I'll, as long as we're talking about benches, one more one more example. Right by my house in Oakland, there's a bus stop that doesn't have a bench, and someone dragged like this old bench over by the bu- <laughs> to the bus stop and just spray painted on it for the bus. <laughs> That's some... We take matters into our own hands here. That's vigilante transit justice. All right. Uh, I think, you know, we'll, we'll wrap things up in a little bit. Uh, and I wanted to talk about a lot of these kind of local examples that you weave throughout the book, but there are some kind of bigger ideas. And I think one of the ones that sort of powers the book and kind of kicks things off is this concept of how we take the concept of like clocks and um, the fact there's like 24 hours in a day and the way that we perceive time kind of for granted because we've all you know evolved in this society for generations, but um, you sort of get into the sort of origins of this classification or this um, this way of delineating time and specifically you kind of trace some of it to like like you mentioned earlier colonialism. And I'm wondering if you can kind of get into that a little bit, because it's such a fascinating sort of chapter of human history that, I mean, I wasn't very familiar with, I think, it, and you really shed light on it. And, and I think it's like right, right at the beginning, like chapter one, so. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's funny because sometimes I think, like, time, the idea of time being money is so widespread now that anything else seems... It, is what is thought of as exotic. But when you look at the history of how people have reckoned time, it's actually the idea of time as money that is the exotic (laughs) species, I think, of time. Like I was saying, sort of invasive species. And so I really, really loved um, this book that I I cite quite a bit in that chapter called The Colonization of Time, which is about um, British colonists showing up in South Africa and also Australia. So it's examples from each place. And the clash that happened between this imported sense of not only, not just clock time, but um, the like ideals of like regular work, right? Like work hours, and like a Sabbath punctuated week, um, and also ideas about that that is time, and that anyone who doesn't um, me- measure time in a way that's divorced from nature is not sort of part of modernity. Um, so you have like that sort of showing up and then encountering a fully formed different conception of time that is obviously more attentive to natural cues, um, maybe like task-oriented work, um, basically just two, ve- two very different uh, systems of thinking about time. And there's, there's an exchange that I quote from that book where there's literally two people talking to each other trying to, they cannot understand each other because they're speaking such different languages of time. And I think that that's a really important 
uh, moment to revisit now because it it makes it a little bit easier to not take something that's so common for granted um, just to sort of look at the origin story of it, which is something that you do a lot too. It's like a way of kind of um, defamiliarizing it a little bit. Um, and something that I found really heartening actually in looking at that history, I mean, I think when I started out researching, I, it seemed like a very uh, sad story to me, right? Like this invasive species of time took over the world and there's no, like, no resistance left, right? And that's really not what I found. Um, people have always found ways to resist all kinds of systems of power, time included, um, and including ways that we talk about time. Um, you can appropriate clock language to get what you want, um, which is what happened a lot of the time. Uh, and then it's also just true that, it, it's true that we all live in the sort of in that, that ether, right, of like time is money, but we all also know how to speak other languages of time and we do it all the time. Uh, like we're, we live in bodies that exhibit a kind of rhythm and uh, non-standardized, non-linear time. We can just look outside, there are, we have seasons, right? Like, so it's, it's, it's funny because sometimes I will be asked like, um, you know, how, how do we, like, how do we get to that other sense of time? And it's sort of like, it's actually right there. Um, it's almost like right in front of you. It's just that the signal is not as loud as the signal that's telling you that time is money. Yeah. And, and on that topic of resistance too, I mean, in the examples you give of, you know, these colonists kind of trying to impose this concept of time on these native people that measure time in a totally different way, how this sort of symbol of the colonialist power is the clock tower in the center of town so everyone can know what time to report for work and what time to, you know, do all these things that they're kind of being forced to do. And I think you mentioned like an example of like a rebellion where one of the first things they do is like smash the clock yeah. tower, right? Yeah, there was a, well, there was a chief who's, yeah, smashed the, the tower bell. Um, there's also an example that's, that's from the colonization of time um, much later where a, a digital clock tower was installed somewhere in Australia uh, in a town that had a largely uh, indigenous population and no one looked at it and it stopped working. But no one noticed because no one was looking at it. And then someone from the town described it, the tower as a waste of time. <laughs> I think the time actually might be wrong on the Tribune Tower clock right now. It was like two <laughs> weeks ago. So, <laughs> I, and by the way, I didn't notice that someone else, like when I mentioned that I'd gone up to the Tribune Tower, someone was like, how long has the time been off? And I was like, oh, I didn't even notice. <laughs> um, so I think one of the pitfalls that a lot of people fall into when, when you're critiquing kind of like, modernity or you know kind of modern civilization or kind of the way things are now I think it's easy sometimes to fall into a kind of like things were better in the pastism or like nostalgia uh, and I think that you are really skilled at avoiding that it's something you know I try to constantly do as like a local historian like telling these stories and you know certainly reminiscing and acknowledging good things from the past but not pretending like there was this kind of mythical golden era before so-and-so came along and ruined everything, whether it's capitalism or whatever. And so I'm wondering if you can explain, like, how, you know, did you find yourself falling into that at, at all when you were writing this book? And if so, kind of how did you sort of reel yourself back in order to not kind of fall into the trap of glorifying uh, kind of nostalgia or the past? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, it kind of goes back to what I was saying about looking at, uh, looking at archives you know, it's not that long ago, but like looking at process world, for example, like I think anything, I, I really appreciate, 
I really appreciate anything that reminds me of the sort of day-to-day psychological reality of someone from the past. I mean, it's almost like the uncanniness of a colorized photo, right? Like when you see a colorized photo from, I don't know, the thirties or something, you're like, oh, like that could just be like your friend, you know, that you know now. Um, Like obviously many things have changed, but there's sort of like the lived reality of a person from the past, like very basically is, is similar to mine. And I think that kind of keeps me from falling into the nostalgia trap because when when you look at things nostalgically the the people in that kind of era that you're being nostalgic about are implied to be different from you like like fundamentally different yeah. like they don't have the same reality as you and um there's a really interesting study that I that I talk about in the middle of the book about the lesser minds problem um which is what it sounds like it's a bias um of thinking that people in an outgroup people especially in an out group, um, but just I think other people in general um, don't have the same psychological depth that you do. Um, so like hopes and dreams and fears and regrets, right? Um, and they don't have as rich of an emotional life. And, uh, and I thought uh, that it was really, I was, I was shocked by this. One of the examples that they gave was that um, participants in the study who were asked to think about Um, unhoused people, which typically would not for these participants light up the part of their brain that's associated with like theory of mind or like imagining that someone has emotional depth. And then when they were asked the question, what kind of vegetable do you think this person would prefer? Like that was the question. They immediately started to empathize more because you're thinking about a person with desire. And my reading of that study was if someone has desire, that means they have a past and it means they have a future and they're oriented like they're trying to do something. They're not uh, sort of like dehumanized, like static entity. But the interesting thing in that study was that they also noted that you can have a lesser mind's bias towards yourself in the future because your future self is far away. I think anyone who procrastinates a lot <laughs> knows this, right? You're like, oh, she'll do it, you know? <laughs> she'll be fine. Um, yeah. <laughs> like she won't, she won't be worried about anything, you know? Um, but I just thought that was really interesting that that bias could happen either in, in the same moment with people who you don't identify with, but it could also happen in time, like yourself in a different time. And so I think, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is like I tried to, I tried to avoid the lesser minds bias in like all directions, including mm-hmm. the past. Yeah, great answer. Um, this has been such a friendly crowd. You guys have been laughing at all our jokes, which we really appreciate. <laughs> so can we do like maybe like two or three quick questions before we wrap things up? Is that all right? All right. If the, whoever wants to go first wants to come up, I can pass the mic over. If you have a question for Jenny, right here in front. Perfect. Hi. Thank Hi. you. Very interesting conversation. Um, I'm curious. I, don't, I haven't read the book yet. I'm very excited to. Um, if you explored it all or if you have thoughts about how children experience time. I have a one and a three-year-old, and they <laughs> definitely are not adoctrinated into okay. the time is money paradigm yet. Um, and if that gives you any like hope for what could be if we make certain, I guess, adjustments in our parenting now. Yeah. Um, so I... I don't, which um, I sort of, I don't specifically talk about that, which I regret because I um, am a proud friend of many three-year-olds at the moment, um, and <laughs> I spend a lot of time with them and, and how they experience time. Um, I do quote this um, sociologist, Barbara Adam, who's written a lot about um, different kinds of, different ways of experiencing time, and there's this really beautiful quote where she's talking about, 
she's just explained, you know, standardized fungible time. And then she goes on to say like, but we know this, we basically, we know this isn't true. And then she gives a bunch of really intuitive examples. And one of them is like, we know that like a birthday tomorrow feels like forever to a child. Um, and so I think, uh, I do think that that is like a really easy to access and intu intuitive example. And I also talk about um, Sarah Hendren, who's the author of this book, amazing book called What Can a Body Do? About disability and design. She, it's a little bit different, but she talks about her son being diagnosed with Down syndrome and how the, not only the sort of like industrialized time of school, but also like milestones really don't apply to him. And obviously that's like painful and creates a lot of tension, but she also writes about being, about his experience allowing her to see outside of that. So she can both see how much it shapes everyone's way of thinking about development and their children, but she can also see his experience as like being joyful and meaningful outside of that. And it's, it's like, it's very beautiful. Hi, thank you. I'm actually just very curious about your personal experience of writing this book which I also haven't read, but I'm very excited to read. <laughs> My um, housemate and dear friend recommended your first book to me years ago, and I didn't have like the space in my head to read it. And I just recently read it, and I was just like, oh, it was just, <laughs> it was just like really great. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm just curious about like how you structured your own time while writing this book, and did you fall into pitfalls or like, hmm. and just what did you do? Did you like do it every day? Did you do it at night? Like how yeah. did that work? Yeah, that's a great question. I So I was still teaching um, for most of the time that I was writing it. Um, I was teaching online because of the pandemic. And so I had, I had that to deal with. Um, so I kind of had to work around that schedule because um, it was like a, it's a full-time, it was a full-time adjunct job. So it had a lot of prep involved. So summers were easier um, as it was the case with How to Do Nothing. Um, I had a kind of funny experience of when I, I knew I was starting and I knew the end date, which was basically two years away at the time. So I started, I started writing this basically not that long after the pandemic started. Um, I, I was so daunted by that amount of time and the scope of this that I set out to write this very unnecessarily detailed schedule um, that looked, it looked exactly like a syllabus, which in retrospect is because I, I knew how to write a syllabus, um, where it was like, okay, this week I'm gonna like read this and this, and like this is so hilarious to me now because I didn't do anything on this, <laughs> on this schedule, but um, I mean, I did everything just not in that, not in that format, um, and I think I, I was a little bit, I panicked a little bit because the beginning was taking so long, but as it should, like think that is just the way it works. Like it gets faster towards the end, but somehow I just, I, it's, it's deeply ironic to me because I was, I was using that sort of like industrialized, like all time is the same an hour and an hour is an hour versus like, sometimes, you know, you might not do anything that day, but you had one realization and it could be the most important realization in the entire book. Like, how do you quantify that, right? So I think um, as time went on, I, I started to have more respect for the, the kind of blobbiness of the process. And I, and I do feel like if I felt like I was getting really behind, there were little like tricks that if I needed to speed it up, like just talking to someone about it was always a very helpful way of kind of like getting out of a bind. But yeah, I didn't really have... I didn't really have like a, a 
an identifiable method. Like, I feel like I was just kind of like in a fugue state for, for two years. I don't know. Um, and, uh, and, it, and, I, and I couldn't turn it off. So like, I just, like everything that I experienced went into my notes somehow. And then um, one thing I will say is that I put a very large premium on sleep um, and like sleep as a way of like knitting things together in your mind, which is obviously a lot of knitting together in this book. Um, so I did try to, I did try to, you know, remember the importance of just like processing time, like sleep and just walking and talking to people, um, that that is often as important, if not more than taking in information. Uh, can you talk in the mic so we can get it on? Okay, so I remember hearing you say that for, with um, How to Do Nothing, that one of the things, one of your pieces of your process was um, that you were collecting all of these bits of information in your research that uh, by the time you were finishing How to Do Nothing, you were like, ooh, I'm going to write a book about time. Do you remember yeah. saying this? Yeah, did I? Probably. It's not like I, something I was I saying. remember yeah. you saying, like, oh, you know, you can kind of, you're doing all this research already, so you can kind of keep track of stuff, and then it starts to sort of become the next book. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. And I'm curious if that happened with this book. Yeah, it did. And like I said, I was recently revisiting the, that old journal from 2018, and uh, one of, I completely forgot this, but there's a really important book that I cite in, in this book called In the Meantime, which is about basically a social politics of time. So it's, it's acknowledging, you know, there's like this common refrain right now that like everything's getting faster, right? Everything's getting faster and faster. And it sort of uh, doesn't acknowledge the fact that actually, first of all, you can pay for slowness now, right? Like you can pay for, for slow life experiences, but also, you know, like what about the cab driver who's waiting at the airport for the jet setting person who, for whom everything is getting faster and faster? So it's like this really important book about complicating that idea and sort of making it be more, showing more how time is just sort of, how you experience time as a reflection of power and how much you have and where you are in a structure. Um, in my mind, I in my memory, I 100% thought that I, I read that after How to Do Nothing um, and that that was like an important, you know, uh, piece for this book. But I apparently read that while I was writing How to Do Nothing. And so I think that there are a lot of things like that that actually... I, I came across first while writing How to Do Nothing, and they definitely informed the book. Like, I think if you read How to Do Nothing, you can tell that I don't think all time should be money, or I wish that not all time felt like money. It's just not really fully developed yet, um, and then it is here, and I think there are similar things in here now. Like, there is, you know, like how children experience time, also like memory, right? Like, I talk a little bit about memory, but it's not, it, it could go, I think, further, and so I think, I really like that. I mean, I think that is also just an indication of, um, I, this is probably true of most people, like there's a there's a question or a type of question that you're just gonna try to, you're going to be trying to answer for the rest of your life. And it just takes on different forms at different times. But I like to just kind of like try to keep following it. Um, any closing words that you wanna say? Time is beans. That is what, sorry, that's the unofficial motto of this book. You will encounter it in chapter four. That time is not money, it is beans. All right, words to, <laughs> words to live by, folks. Yeah. Jenny O'Dell, thanks for coming out tonight. Books are available in the back. Get a copy, get it signed. The line is forming back there by uh, Kevin and the KPFA.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. Once again, music for this episode came from my friend, Mark Pantoja. Shout out to KPFA and The Backroom for helping make this event happen. Uh, If you enjoyed this episode, please spread the word to your friends and family about East Bay Yesterday. Uh, You can find links to all my social media accounts, you know, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all that good stuff, and uh, my newsletter at eastbayyesterday.com. And if you really liked the show, please hit the donate link while you're there. It really helps a lot. Uh, I wouldn't be able to do this show without those of you out there who are already supporting my Patreon. Thank you so much. Okay, that's it. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back soon with more East Bay Yesterday.